Hello, and welcome to Finding the Glitter in the Gold, a Lord of the Rings chat podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. And we are discussing the works of John Ronald Raoul Tolkien, who was writing in the universe of Middle-earth uh, from 1937 when he was about 45, up until his death in 1973 when he still hadn't made internally consistent narratives. So any mistakes we make or any facts we get wrong are because we are just doing what he did and making shit up. And today I was supposed to take the lead on this topic, but as always seems to happen, Zoe has come at it like a champ. <laughs> it was originally going to be a discussion of teen grudges in the fellowship, who hates who and why, and kind of the little conflicts that uh, arose as some very petty things. This is all based on an infographic that I found on Tumblr and cannot find the source of it anymore. Like Googling who has beef in Lord of the Rings gets me a lot of recipes, (laughs) (laughs) but not this image. (laughs) I don't know where I found it. Why is that your keyword? Who has beef in Lord of the Rings? Listen, I'm not a good Googler. (laughs) I mean, I'm not either. (laughs) But you know that was that was what I thought and typed in, and then it was like, here's how the orcs would cook meat, and I was like, we already talked about that. We don't have to have that discussion again. <laughs> the invention of the pulled pork sandwich. I'm going to describe this infographic, and it's a circle with all nine members of the fellowship, and then it has little colored arrows between each character that they have beef with, uh, and why, like what kind of weird little problems they have with each other. And so some examples, I, I think Sam's are some of my favorite little um, issues with people. Like he has an issue with Boromir because he doesn't think Boromir respects gardeners. He's never asked him and never will, but he's still angry about it. And then he has beef with Aragorn because he's still not over the time that Aragorn scared Frodo and he just generally thinks Aragorn's a little too overdramatic. And Aragorn likewise has issues with Sam because Sam is still not over it. <laughs> he's also mad uh aragorn is also mad at mary because uh, mary knows more about pipe weed than he does and unfortunately it always comes up every time they're left alone which kind of surprises me because i would have thought that would be something up with gandalf that gandalf has beef with mary for knowing more about pipe weed because gandalf smokes so much pipe weed yeah but i mean i feel like gandalf's not going to get up in arms about that he's he's smoked so much pipe weed he doesn't care <laughs> He's an old man, though. I feel like he has his grudges. Well, he does in this infographic. (laughs) It suggests that he has beef with Boromir because Boromir ratted Gandalf out to his dad about his use of the library when he was 12. Gandalf has forgiven, but never forgotten. And then Gandalf also has beef with Pippin because Pippin is who Gandalf will have to fight during the Dagor Dagbrath, which I don't know what that is. I looked this up. It's from Lord of the Rings. It's, um, Tolkien, it means the end of days. So it's like the final battle. Tolkien envisioned that there would be like a final battle that would destroy Middle Earth. Didn't really give it like a timeline of when that was going to happen, but it was called the Dagodagorath. And, um, hasn't happened yet. So I don't know. And Gandalf is in Valinor and Pippin's dead. So I don't really know where that was referencing, but that is the end of days battle when the world will fall. 
Okay, so... And Tolkien had to create a fucking apocalypse. <laughs> Stop it, Tolkien. It's too real, the apocalypse. Know, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to make a mythology, and in this mythology, there's going to be a superstition about when the end of the world's going to happen. And I guess you have to fight the person you find most annoying in the world. <laughs> to be fair, Pippin is pretty annoying. I mean, yes. In, in the movies... I suppose he's fairly stupid, and that's he's also difficult. very. He does a lot of the same stuff in the book. Okay, like so the entire just... thing where he like in the mines of Moria, he actually does send a fucking skeleton down the well that wakes up the the goblins, and thus the Balrog. Billy Boyd's acting in that scene is incredible. It is though. It's very it... true to form. Yes. Um, so that was a few examples of the the beef that's going on, and I some of these are just my favorite. Like the one... I like the one about Legolas and Mary's grudge. Yeah, Legolas and Mary have a great grudge. Uh, Mary has a grudge against Legolas because Legolas fell asleep with his eyes open when Mary was trying to explain the different varieties of pipeweed, and it took more than an hour for Mary to realize, and he's never gotten over the insult. Whether or not Legolas was asleep when Mary started talking is still up for debate. And so therefore, Frodo's grudge... Is just real ride or die with his friends and totally supports and engages with Mary's grudge. Yeah, so Legos has a few hobbits mad at him. I also like how many of these have to do with pipeweed. Yeah, a surprising number have to do with pipeweed. So Boromir and Legolas have a mutual one where Boromir really didn't come to make friends and decided immediately that Legolas would be too much effort. And Legolas actually came to the same conclusion near concurrently with Boromir, and yet he's still somewhat resentful that Boromir doesn't even want to try. <laughs> Just so petty. Uh, Frodo and Gimli's, I really liked. Oh, yeah, um, the circular one. That one's good. They realized that they're just very different and they've had so many awkward conversations at this point that they've just stopped trying and they're both getting along much better for it, which is a nice, a nice way to just have a little beef with each other where you're just like we're just not gonna get along our sense of humor is too different we can't do this and the last one because we've actually done all of them uh is between boromir and gandalf well boromir has a grudge against gandalf because gandalf has been the cause of so many family arguments and faramir still adores him and boromir has never been more confused about his relationship to someone in his life yes <laughs> which actually is a really good segue to some of the stuff i ended up researching absolutely tell me about this Okay, so I got super interested in why uh, Gan the Boromir might have this beef with Gandalf, if that actually had any kind of, re like there was some that I was like, some of these aren't going to have any way to find out if there's any reality in these grudges. But that one I was like, huh, this could maybe have some historical implication. So I went down a rabbit hole, which surprisingly was really, really uh, fruitful. Just for funsies, uh, there is something called the Journal of Tolkien Research that is published. There are many, many volumes. There's academic journals for everything. I love it. I, I was like, why is there an academic? Okay, great. Best academic journal ever. And there was a article called Few Have Gained Such a Victory, A Defense of Boromir by Kayla Beboot. I love this man. Hello. Uh, Kayla, I believe, is a woman. I love this person. <laughs> Yes, this person. Caleb? Kayla. Oh, Kay I kept I heard Caleb. Oh yeah, no, Kayla Beboot. Um, and so I read the entire thing and came to the conclusion that there is a high potential that Boromir and Gandalf did have a lot of beef because 
Gandalf was had a had a long line of influence in Minas Tirith. So a little bit of back history. Well, we see some of that in the first movie, right? He goes to the library and that's in Minas Tirith? Yeah, exactly. So he was so he spent a lot of time in the library in Minas Tirith. Um, and he was, because Gandalf, as we said, is a wizard who's immortal. He's been there, going there for a long time. And Gandalf and Denethor's father, Ecthelion II, and Denethor is Boromir's father, uh, were really good friends. Gandalf gave a lot of political advice to Ecthelion. Ecthelion, like, kind of revamped a bunch of different high-security places throughout Gondor at Gandalf's urging. Um, and probably this means that Gandalf would have helped with the education of Denethor in some way, or Denethor would have seen Gandalf being around him all the time. Um, there was a note that Denethor was really well learned in the history and the lore of Minas Tirith and Gondor and just their world in general, um, which Gandalf was often going to study in the library of like, where did the ring come from? What are the Palantirs? Let me delve into this like old dark history of the world. And Denethor actually had a lot of knowledge about it. He ended up using one of the Palantirs. Um, oh, that's bad. Yeah, he because and that was part of why um, there was probably some corrosive effect on his mind. He wasn't necessarily in league with Sauron, but he was trying to use it to see the future and probably being persuaded in some ways, or the future was being changed because Sauron had control of the Palantirs. Mm. So Denethor probably did not like Gandalf for a load of different reasons. Including I'm trying to think of this now, and I'm like, was it... Was he mad that Gandalf knew more than him about academics or was like Gandalf his tutor and he got grumpy? I don't know. There's a lot of questions there. Yeah, I feel like it could be Gandalf was his tutor and he got grumpy and then he had this grudge against Gandalf for the rest of his life. And like maybe he kind of felt like he was a bit of a wizard's pupil because he always calls Faramir a wizard's pupil, like in this derogatory way because he's mad that Faramir was listening to Gandalf and not loyal to him. And he loved Boromir because Boromir was always loyal to him. Like he says that. It's kind of like a Gandalf's not your real dad. I'm your real dad, but I'm also a shitty dad. Right, but I'm not gonna admit that I'm a shitty dad. It sounds like Gandalf has fucked up a lot of the family relationships for Boromir and that's a legit thing. The article itself was kind of interesting because it played off of Boromir's pride and these like kind of negative attributes that we really see him portraying his greed, his pride, his desire to be king and not relinquish to Aragorn. Um, and he had this haughtiness. And he's a hottie. He was, well, he was haughty, but also haughty. That needed an accent. I'm just, I'm just sexually objectifying Sean Bean. Hey, you know what? That's allowed. We have to do it as much as we do it to Aragorn, right? It has to be fair. <laughs> but then also compared that to the qualities of he was loyal. He was a good warrior. He did love his brother. Um, and his brother had some interesting things to say about Boromir. Faramir did? Yeah, because they, they, like, Faramir absolutely loved Boromir. Um, and there was a bit in the appendices that was talking about their relationship. So the appendices are at the end of the Return of the King. Tolkien stated that between the brothers was great love. No jealousy or rivalry had ever risen between them. So even though Denethor absolutely hated Faramir, Faramir never held that against his brother, which is kind of cool. That's nice. So Boromir had these like conflicting, a lot of conflicting attributes. 
he was probably torn between needing to fulfill his father's vision of him to protect Gondor, to support his brother without his father knowing that he was trying to support his brother. And then he was also kind of having the corrosive effects of the ring playing at him. And Gandalf was kind of just this dude that he grew up with who would show up and like make his dad really angry whenever he arrived, but for no real clear reason. Right, precisely. <laughs> and then Faramir loved him and Boromir was like, what do you see in this very old man who just pisses our dad off? Gandalf explains to Pippin that by some chance the blood of Westerness runs nearly true in Denethor as it does in his other son, Faramir, and yet did not in Boromir whom he loved best. The blood of Westerness is a, like a old line of humans that were really smart and farsighted um, and wise. So this is also interesting because if, if that ran true in Denethor, so Denethor was very smart and wise and so was Faramir. It could be that maybe Denethor didn't like Faramir because he saw so, too much of a similarity between them. Kind of like when you like don't like something because it represents qualities of you that you may not like. Mm -hmm. Kind of similar. But these all seem like good qualities. Well, I don't know. It is, quality, maybe it's, but maybe Denethor didn't see it that way. Maybe it's like the thing where you're worried that someone's, like your kids are smarter than you. Or right. like going to do better than you. And you feel kind of yucky about that. I don't know. So Faramir, Faramir was like a similar, if he had the similar qualities, but he was more moral. Like Denethor was very calculating and political and kind of, the means justifies the the ends justify the means and Faramir was definitely like no I have my morals even when faced with the fact that I could take the ring and give it to my father and my father would love me like all he wanted was someone who will be loyal to him and has said you know Boromir would bring me the ring he would have brought it to me if he had lived you wouldn't and so even faced with that Faramir is like no actually I'm gonna make the choice to not just seek my father's love but to let frodo and sam keep going on the quest because that's the right thing to do that's hard when your kid's uh more moral than you right and you're like ah shit something didn't happen didn't happen quite right so there's textual evidence for that particular beef there is textual evidence for that particular beef i've also thought it interesting because i'd never really read or like thought of it quite in this way um and this is a slight tangent but in the uh, B-Boot, says that Boromir's attack on Frodo causes him to see the true depth of his own flaws, and instead of giving in to them or bemoaning his fate, he takes action to overcome them. Thus, his fall can be seen as the root of his redemption. And since the breaking of the Fellowship allows the members to have greater impact on Middle-earth by sending them to different regions in need of help, the consequences of Boromir's momentary failure and eventual repentant death save middle earth that's a good way of putting it yeah you do see that in the movies where he i don't know that moment where he snaps out of it because he like runs into something i think he smacks his head on something and then he's like oh what am i doing i'm chasing a, a child-sized person yeah it's like and i mean and it is true like yes he is prideful and he he is all of that but he's also like a strong warrior who attacks foes and like will take them on and go into challenges even if it means he might die he's a very brave person yeah. brave that's the word yeah so that was that beef that i kind of took a dive into any other any other beefs that have textual evidence not really i did end up doing some research about well i did i ended up looking a little bit more about legolas 
Um, and then I also ended up finding a lot of information about people Tolkien knew in the real world that he may or may not have created into characters in the Lord of the Rings. That was kind of fun. Um, that can be awkward when your friend writes you into an epic fantasy and you're like, hey. He doesn't name them per se. And some of them were more like general. I mean, he named one and it was C.S. Lewis and that is the slow talking tree man. Yes. Okay, so Humphrey Carpenter wrote a biography of J.R.R. Tolkien and he talked a little bit about this and it, he said when eventually he came to write this chapter about their, the Hobbit's encounter with Treebeard, he modeled Treebeard's way of speaking hrum hrum on the booming voice of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Which is kind of perfect. Like you can hear C.S. Lewis in your head. Hrum hrum. I... I love that, and that's also, like, a brutal burn. Right? <laughs> like, I'm gonna make fun of how slow you talk and how weird you talk with this tree. I mean, they were both professors. I'm sure they were slow talkers in general. Slow, dignified speakers. Especially because they were from England. Yeah, my one contribution to this, and I'm not very helpful about it, because I don't know anyone's names, but I know that J.R.R. Tolkien modeled himself and his wife off of one of the very early like Valar love stories. Yes, he did. Baron and Luthien. Yeah, the Baron and Luthien was kind of the, one of the first love stories between a elf and a mortal man. So Luthien was an elf and Baron was a man and their story involves when Baron goes to rescue the Silmarils, which were these like powerful jewels from Morgoth. Um, and Hence the name Summerlian. Yes. Didn't know that was even. The, I I just never questioned. I was like, okay, this is this is a funny sibilant sound you make with your mouth, and that's the name of a book. Kind of like Sisyrus. No, the Silmarils were three uh, jewels that Morgoth had captured. I believe they came from stars. Meteorites. Meteorites. Yeah, if they land on the ground, they're meteorites. If they burn up in the atmosphere, they're meteors. Oh, interesting. The Silmarils were known, they were the jewels of Fëanor. They were crafted by Fëanor, who was one of the elves, from some essence of the two trees of Valinor before the first age. Oh, they're tree gems. Basically, yes. Uh, it is said that the fate of Arda was woven about the Silmarils. So there was a war of these jewels, which ended the first age. We don't have to talk a ton about them if you have other stuff prepared. Well, I do. Anyway, basically, war of the jewels, he saved a bunch of them. And then, oh, Luthen's love for Baron was so strong that upon hearing of his death, she lay down and died. Her soul went to the halls of Mandos, where she managed to charm Mandos into granting her a wish. Both she and Baron were miraculously restored to life, but both of them would live as mortals and die the depth of men and go beyond the walls of Arda to a place unknown. So that's really cute, because basically it means that he wanted to be with his wife, Edith, for forever and ever and always. So sweet. And she actually, it was really cute because they met... Uh, because she would dance, um, like, in a field outside of his hospital when he was hospitalized after World War I. Oh. And that's, like, how they met. I and Karen, to... like, finds Luthien because she's dancing in a forest grove. 
Oh, that's so precious. Cute. This is also the first example of an elf dying of sads. Yes, this is. In the timeline of Middle Earth, probably. Probably. But it's just so cute. Oh. No. Anyway. Love. True love. <laughs> um, so you were saying, this is kind of a decent lead-in, Jarrah Tolkien was in World War One. He was, yes. Um, and it's interesting because that's, uh, Samwise was based off of a Batman in World War One. What's a Batman? So Batman in the English uh, army, they were basically like the, um, not servants, but they, they helped the soldiers. They would carry their bags and bring them food. Basically everything that Sam does uh, is what the Batman would do for the soldiers in the war. Because in World War One, they didn't have the same supply lines and mechanisms and technology as we do now. So a lot, there was a lot more stuff that was kind of, you had to bring it to them and people had, you had to carry all the shit. Um, so in an unpublished letter from Tolkien to H. Cotton Minchin, and I found a bunch of this online, it was like an, a, a, a compilation of a bunch of his letters that had been scanned in, and then there was commentary and it was organized and you could kind of just go through it uh, by subject. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it was actually really cool. You can't read his handwriting very well. There's some that there's still just debates about what word he meant was trying to use hmm. but in an unpublished letter he wrote my samwise is indeed as you note largely a reflection of the english soldier soldier the memory of the privates and my batsmen that i knew in the 1914 war and recognized as so far superior to myself Aww. which would explain a lot about why sam was kind of quote-unquote the real hero yeah i mean he's he's so much more than support he's moral support he is an inspiration he has one of my favorite like and it's so relevant for these times where it's that quote about uh oh um sam says i know it's all right wrong by rights we shouldn't even be here but we are it's like in the great stories mr frodo the ones that really mattered full of darkness and danger they were and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy how could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do know. I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. Frodo, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam, that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. That one? Yeah, that's a very powerful speech, especially coming from the perspective of somebody who fought in World War I. Mm -hmm. And that he's inspired by these soldiers that fought in World War I. Mm -hmm. And we're like kind of the lowest of the low in terms of soldiering. <laughs> like they were the basic people who were in charge of supply lines and support. They didn't really get any mention. They didn't get any honor from it, but it was the most necessary of jobs in a lot of ways. Yeah. Kind of like how we're seeing now with healthcare workers and food workers and sanitary workers. Like they're the unsung heroes. You don't hear much about them. 
People often think their jobs aren't that great, but they're the ones we rely on now. And that makes the his supposed beef with uh, Boromir interesting because he thinks mm -hmm. that Boromir doesn't respect gardeners. And I wonder if Boromir does have that kind of hero mentality where it's like, I am a powerful person and I will protect people and I am the one who's going to go out and do all this stuff. And he doesn't think about the people who are in charge of support. I don't know if he would or not. I don't know. Like, we don't see a ton of him interacting with lower class soldiers or anything like that. We mostly see Faramir doing that. Because Faramir is kind of a tactician and Faramir is in charge of little groups of soldiers, it seems, who are kind of scouting. And it seems like he has their loyalty and their respect. And we don't see Boromir interact too much apart from being kind of a genial person to be around. He's probably a charismatic guy. He was, he was definitely more of the leader. He definitely would have been the one, like, like we see him giving a big speech in Return of the King to rally the troops in Osgiliath before he goes off and goes on the quest. Um, yeah. Apparently he was a very, like a very strong leader. People really did look to him and look up to him. Um, Faramir took over the garrison, the small garrison that was helping man Osgiliath once Boromir left and went on the quest and had to kind of try and fulfill Boromir's role, but he never did quote unquote adequately for his father, like enough for his father. Um, but that's biased. It feels like it's kind of the, the dichotomy of somebody who's a very basic person who's doing their job and doing it well and takes a great deal of pride in what they do. And you see that in Sam. And then you have a figure who's kind of a larger than life hero figure who's in charge of great armies and has a lot of responsibility and sees themselves as a very strong leader and a person who's going to turn the tides in a very specific way. And it's two different perspectives on how you handle a huge responsibility. Totally. So no wonder they have beef. <laughs> so much beef. <laughs> oh, okay. Speaking of Faramir, and this is one I think you'll enjoy. Drum roll, please. Tolkien was like Faramir. He put himself into the book via Faramir. What? Tolkien wrote in a letter to a fan, and this was from, I guess, a book of published Tolkien's letters. This was letter 232. As far as my character is like me, it is Faramir, except that I lack what all my characters possess. Let the psychoanalysts note, courage. For when Faramir speaks of his private vision of the great wave, he speaks for me. That vision and dream has, ever, has been ever with me and has been inherited as I only discovered recently by one of my children. Uh, and then in letter 163, he says, I don't think I have had the dream since I wrote the downfall of Numenor as the last of the legends of the first and second age. What was the downfall of Numenor? It's his like Atlantis-esque part of the mythology. Numenor was a, a city built by the Numenorians, um, a line of men from which Aragorn is descended who had long life. Um, and they built a city in the sea on the way to the Valinor, and it sank. I remember I asked if there were sea elves, and you were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no sea elves, but there, there was a city in the sea that sank. So his fear, Tolkien's fear was a great wave. I remember that a bit from, from Lord of the Rings. Faramir has that. The, and I found in the book, um, yes, he's describing the dream to Eowyn, 
uh, a great dark wave climbing over the green lands and above the hills and coming on darkness unescapable. I often dream of it. So apparently that was uh, Tolkien's dream that he gave the Faramir. I wonder if it's another vision of war. I mean, that would make sense in terms of the Lord of the Rings with this great dark power of Sauron that's rising over the hill. Like it's Gondor is closest to Mordor. And so that would like the, the, the symbolic imagery of a wave rising over green land, the dark power rising over to take over Gondor in land. And I mean, we have, Tolkien was in World War One, but World War Two came as well. And he lived through that. He didn't fight in it, but he was in England for World War Two. That was a bad one. The yeah. Blitz. The Blitz. Oh. I wonder when he published The Downfall of Numenor. So autumn 1948, uh, Tolkien probably wrote a new version of The Downfall of Numenor. So there is the TolkienSociety.org. Okay, and that was kind of towards the end of World War II, yeah? 1948, yeah, because World War II ended 1949? So maybe that was kind of the thing, like, the dark wave was his fear of war. I don't know, this is, this is actually me just totally speculating. This is nothing. Like, trying to analyze Tolkien's dreams or whatever the fuck. He always said that he did not want The Lord of the Rings to be read as allegory. He wanted it to be read as just a pure story and myth? Yeah, story, myth. Again, he always thought of himself as a translator, right? So he found the Red Book of Westerness. He found all these documents and he had to translate it. Um, He did a lot of work as a translator in the field. So he would often get called to archaeology digs or different places. But if they found inscriptions in Latin or or Middle Old English, what have you, um, and he would be called to translate them and say what they said so they could try and understand what the ruins might be for. I mean, as much as you don't want your books to be read a certain way, I feel like a lot of your history sneaks into that. Oh gosh, yes. I mean, he, he based Sam off of the Batman. Clearly, he <laughs> put influences from his other war into it. Yeah, you can't really escape putting your own life into your works, even if you don't want it to be an allegory. It's still pieces of you and pieces of your worldview. Yeah. And living through World War I and World War II in a relatively short time span definitely affected his worldview. Well, okay, so I didn't really find a ton more in relationship to the grudges. I did find some interesting ideas about why Legolas and Gimli may have become such good friends. Oh, perfect. Um, Good friends. Come on, Zoe. Lovers. Why they became lovers and went into the Undying Lands together. There, I said it. They're super married. Super, super married. So uh, this all is from Megan N. Fontenot, one on Twitter. Uh, she published a bunch of articles bi-weekly um, on Tor.org, which is like a big sci-fi fantasy. I love Tor. They send me a free ebook PDF every month. It's great. Oh, well, there you go. She's on Tor. Um, and she wrote, articles about major and minor characters in the Lord of the Rings and their history and their um, kind of how they changed over the course of the books. And she went way into all the research. So thank you, Megan Fontenot. You're awesome. Um, So she wrote about Legolas. She did a two article thing about Legolas. And I did not know some of his background. So in the book, The Fall of Gondolin, it talks a little bit about his background. 
Legolas Greenleaf is a night-sided elf of the House of Galdor, who leads the refugees from the Sack of Gondolin to safety through the mountains. He's so familiar with the terrain that the text says he knew the land just as well in the dark as he did the day. His night senses are compared to those of a cat. Legolas then vanishes from the tales until somewhere around the fifth draft of the Council of Elrond in The Lord of the Rings. So Legolas wasn't even a part of the Fellowship until his like fifth version of Lower. Oh, they have all of his old drafts? Not all of them, but and I didn't know this until I started reading the, this woman's work. They, they have quite a few of them, and she'll actually go back and compare draft C, draft D, and how characters changed in the writing of it. Side note, apparently Faramir and Denethor's relationship changed a lot. Like, got worse. Yeah, in an earlier draft, Denethor was actually nicer to Faramir. And then there's, like, Christopher remembers there being a lot of notes on the different drafts about whether or not they should have a decent relationship or a bad relationship. And then finally, there's a note saying, no, it has to be this way. Denethor must be harsh. He has to be mean to Faramir. And then that'll make his redemption of realizing he loves Faramir as he's dying even like more painstaking. But there's a bunch of versions where um, Denethor is originally kinder to Faramir and a bit more understanding of Faramir's side and where he's coming from. And then that got totally scrapped. So Legolas was not part of the Fellowship. And even when he is in the, uh, the Fellowship, he kind of appears to be a bystander or a token elf. Legolas is a prince, but you almost never really hear that. Like he doesn't talk about it. The fact that his father is king of the elven Markwood Forest, not really talked about. Um, he kind of doesn't really do much. He doesn't seem to help out a ton. Um, like when Boromir and Aragorn are carrying the hobbits in the snowstorm, when they're trying to go over Karadharas before they go into the mines of Moria, um, it says that Legolas just walks on the side, doesn't help carry anything, it's just walking. When they go to carry a bunch of boats at one point, he doesn't help carry the boats. Um, but Megan's take on this is that he was a different, kind of represented something different in the books. That he has a lot of knowledge. He's known for um, having a good idea of history and people and who people are. He listens to the world around him. Like he can actually physically listen to trees and stones and know what they're saying. And um, it's, it's referenced many times throughout the books. So Megan says, quote, when Legolas's knowledge falls short, he pauses and carefully reassesses the situation, stoutly resisting any rash conclusions. Take the journey through the Huron Forest as an example. Gimli jumps to cynical conclusions, accusing the living phenomena of a vast, far-reaching hate that wishes to crush and strangle, but Legolas is quick to kindly refute his friend's generalizations. And then Megan says, Legolas underwent a radical change in Lorien. Why is that? And Megan says, we can find the answer again in history and memory. Galadriel's interaction with Gimli is significant because she draws from her own long history and is able to meet the dwarf on a common ground. She sees past ingrained racialization and bonds with Gimli over the beauty of cherished dwarfish landmarks, even taking the time to refer to them in Gimli's own language. What is cherished? Cherished. Oh, okay. Sorry. It's okay. Words. I can't help but imagine that Legolas was moved to reconsider his own prejudice based on this simple scene. It's after this that he goes away among the Gladhirim, 
often taking Gimli with him. A lot of truly excellent fan fiction exists speculating on why this is the case. My theory, I think, touched by Galadriel's example, that he begins to take time to actually learn about Gimli and the land around him. So Megan's take is that Legolas, he's he's the person who like steps back and listens and evaluates and likes to learn from others rather than just go along with his own prejudices. And that's why they're friends. That's the opposite of beef. But that's Gimli and Legolas start with beef. Kind of just like a generalized, like not even very creative beef where it's just like, oh, dwarves and elves always hate each other. And then you get to see throughout the course of it how they come to terms. That's nice. I like that. Yeah. This is what happens when you look past prejudice. A beautiful anti-beef ending to this uh, episode all about who in the fellowship has beef. Thank you for all of your extensive research on that one, Zoe. That was awesome. And I definitely need to check out a lot of those sites that you hit up. They're so much fun. Yes, uh, that's, uh, that is for another day. Thank you very much for this wonderful episode about uh, beef. Everybody uh, listening, thank you for joining us as well. You probably aren't still finding us on SoundCloud anymore, but you should definitely check us out on anchor.fm backslash finding dash the dash glitter because uh, we, we are also on apple podcasts spotify breaker google podcasts we're now on radio public some of these i haven't even heard of we're everywhere now we're gonna take over absolutely with our small lord of the rings podcast um until next time we have been finding the glitter and the goals see you on the shire side